Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Hey, I'm Nikki. I am definitely an alcoholic. Um, I, when I did this last year, I was so nervous that um, I just didn't know what I, I wrote. Some notes, but it's not because um, I won't remember it as much as I tend to get a little off the subject because I'm an alcoholic. I'm a little crazy. So, um, my home group um, is Daily Reprieve at Magnolia. I'm a rebel. I want two of them. And my sobriety date is March 25th, um, 2014. Wow. And um, I do have a sponsor. She's incredibly cool and silly and extremely patient with me when she doesn't take any of my... I can't swear. BS. So that is the best, maybe the best part about her. Um, so let's see my story, my story starts, I just turned 40 and I'm still having major issues with that number. I don't know why, but so I started 40 years ago. Right. And, um, I was raised in Bellevue, um, but it was not the Bellevue that you know today. It was like old school. Um, like we had, we, we raised chickens on a farm. I mean, like Microsoft was in a strip mall. It was a very small place. And my parents both graduated from Mercer Island High School. And so that was kind of rebellious to like go to Bellevue. And they just didn't want anywhere near Mercer Island. So I understand that. Um, And so my parents got married and settled. My mom is a normie and um, was actually quite involved in Al-Anon and still is. Um, because she had to be to stay sane with living with my dad. And my dad is a, an alcoholic and, um, comes from a very long line of alcoholics. Um, I can remember being very scared of my dad. He was a loving man who loved me and I knew that, but he was hard. He was rough around the edges, um, I was only six when he left and, um, I just, I just, you know, I was old enough and that I understood why people didn't stay together if they couldn't, I got that. But, um, he left to be with somebody else and I don't know why I couldn't quite wrap my head around that. Either way, I, I think I've been, I think I was scared of men from a very early age and, um, and that's kind of where my story started. I went from living in like this farmhouse with like this dad who worked and my mom tended the farm to like my dad splitting. My mom had to go back to work at Safeway and work full time. And I was alone a lot. And, um, and I was very anti-alcohol till I was about 17. Um, alcohol had just screwed up everything and, um, and I, and I hated it and I couldn't say enough shitty, th- pardon me, bad things about it. Um, 
until I got drunk for the first time. I was not anti-alcohol anymore. <laughs> In fact, I was so relieved to have that feeling. You know, we talk about, we hear a lot about people that just don't quite feel right in their skin and, you know, they felt really awkward. Well, I, I actually, you know, I did okay. I wasn't like a, I did all right. You know, I had friends and things were, things were pretty good, but something didn't feel, I don't know. All I know is the first time I got drunk, I was like, okay, like now I can be this person. I had friends who were literally worried about me because I didn't drink, you know, like, because I just wasn't a normal kid and, you know, take a load off. And that's what I did. I took a load off. It was, it got pretty crazy after that. Um, and I drank all through my senior year in high school and got into immediately consequences kicked in. I uh, got messed up all over the place. And my mom, my poor mom just didn't really know what to do with me. Um, but I moved out and went to college at the U and I was hell bent on being this university student. My dad's like, you know, you maybe want to try community college. I'll no, I made it to the U. I'm going to the U. And I did not know what, I didn't go to a terribly academic school in high school. So I really wasn't prepped. I mean, I was scared. I was scared out of my mind. Um, I just didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. You know, that first year, I just remember calling my mom and weeping. I have this paper due tomorrow and I don't even know what it's on. And I mean, I was just, it was, just, it was so like, I wasn't an adult. And, and suddenly I was like living with all these adults on my own. And that's nuts because I, my mom really put the reins on me kind of cause she knew where I was headed. And suddenly I could do anything I wanted, which was really scary. But I really started doing drugs, drugs that are legal now type of thing. I know we're really not supposed to talk about drugs, but I realized really early on that it was very impractical to drink and have an eight o'clock class and try to drink and then wake up in time for an eight o'clock class. It just wasn't really working for me. So I had a friend bring some things over and, um, I just completely switched addictions is what happened. And that pretty much went on um, till my second year in college. I was, um, so I was 19 and I was losing my mind and I got diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And I know people have mixed feelings about talking about mental illness, but um, for me, dual diagnosis is a really, well, it's a bum deal for one, but other than that, it's, it's just a, it's a large part of my story. I didn't understand why I could go all this time and be okay. And then suddenly I wasn't okay. And the truth was I hadn't been okay for a long time, but I suddenly couldn't subsist without these meds. And really back then they thought you would take maybe some Prozac for a year and get through the tough times. And then, you know, you'd go on with your merry life. And I spent the first 10 years of the diagnosis trying to get off meds, which wasn't such a hot idea. It wasn't until I was about 30 and I went in for some electroconvulsive therapy that I had a very wise doctor who just said, the reality is you're probably never going to go off meds. And that didn't make me sad at all. I just wish someone would have told me that like 10 years earlier and I wouldn't feel like such a failure, you know? 
It made a lot of sense. You know, you can think of it. I, I love when people try to liken mental illness to like, you know, high blood pressure and, you know, it's just like diabetes. You have to take insulin. Yeah, whatever. Diabetes doesn't have the stigma that mental illness does. So you're dealing with that, you know. Um, when I was about 30, I had a boyfriend who went to prison for a year and I, um, pretty much got a bottle of wine on the way home from the first, from dropping him off there. And it, it never stopped. Um, I still did my other drugs, but I needed that to slow down. And, uh, when he broke my heart, I, you know, ended up getting married at 31, um, I was divorced by 36. Um, my ex-wife is a great person and we've actually worked out a lot of our stuff, but she was very toxic for me. And there was, we were just both very messed up and two people that messed up together are just going to, it's messed up. And so that kind of went on. I probably knew from the first month of being married that it wasn't going to last, but was, you know, we milked it for like five years, which is ridiculous, but that's what happens in life. And, um, she had been raised by an alcoholic and really hadn't drank a lot as her, as an adult. And she didn't even know what to do with me. Right. So the first thing she does is throws me in rehab that lasts for about nine months. We end up drinking together and that went on for many, many years. I really struggled with hating myself for drinking, drinking no longer felt even really good anymore. It just wasn't, it didn't, you know, to the opposite was to not drink. And then I felt bad all the time. And I, um, I don't know. I just needed to numb. I just needed to numb myself. And, you know, drinking is a really crummy, um, it's a crummy coping mechanism, but the fact is it is a coping mechanism and I, and it worked for me for a while. And I think that if I hadn't drank, I probably would have maybe done something that was more permanent. So I guess it kept me from doing that. But when I was 37, I got pulled over. Um, and I had, Definitely had a lot of, I had many, many things in my system, but as it turned out, I just got nailed for the drinking and, um, it was a really rough night and I remember I blew up like a point four, and I passed all their sobriety tests. Right. So I really thought I was like home free here. I mean, I thought I've passed the things. I mean, that's really what you need Anyways, when they started to give me the breathalyzer and that, you can't really fool that. Um, I, you know, was fairly, I'm trying to, you know, blow into this thing. Like I, I, it was so, it was so ridiculous, but I mean, that's how crazy we are. Right. So he, 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 I said, well, I, you know, I, I said, I passed all those tests. What's the deal? And, you know, and the, the cop said, and the cop was a nice guy. He could have been a real dick and he was nice. I don't know if that's swearing. Um, <laughs> it's just an anatomical part, right? Okay. So he said uh, to me, um, he said, you blew a really high alcohol content, blood alcohol level. And I said, okay, well, um, he said, you know what that tells me? And 
I could think of all kinds of snotty things to say back to that. But what he said was, you've been doing this for a really long time. And I, everything went out of me. I just, um, I didn't cry. I just, it blew me away. And he looked at me and said, aren't you tired? And I thought, I'm really tired. (laughs) I'm just exhausted. I can't, you know, I can't do this anymore. And the state of Washington, I chose to go a deferred prosecution, so I had to get one of those fun little blongos in the car. But they don't, they don't give you any of those consequences for about two months after it happens. So I, of course, continued to drink as much as I could since I wasn't going to be able to. And, um, I just, I remember that night drinking, my mom was sleeping in my room and I, you know, I got a couple of big bottles of wine and I drank them and I just, I cried and I, um, I said goodbye to alcohol and it was so sad because I just didn't know how I was going to do without it. I knew it needed to happen. I just, I even knew there were ways to do it and there was support and I, I knew that I, you know, it wasn't inconceivable to me. I just didn't want to do it. So my first year of AA was pretty rough. Um, I did not, I got totally gypped on this pink cloud business. <laughs> I was, I think I was in the hospital. I think I was in the hospital three times in nine months and, um, I really needed to get properly medicated, which I finally did. And it was night and day. I could start, I mean, I could work a program where I could remember, I remember my sponsor saying to me, okay, I'd read a paragraph or something and she'd say, okay, so what did you just say? What, what, what did you just read? I'm like, I, I don't know. I mean, that's what this is. That's why this is so hard. It's because I don't know what you do. You know, I just couldn't retain anything. And those meds, allowed me to have some self-esteem and to conceive what I was reading. And that was pretty awesome. Um, I realized I needed to make some new friends because, you know, I had old friends that did forgive me, but I had some that didn't. And um, that was pretty hard to wrap my head around. So I think I got kind of a delayed pink cloud. It was joyous um, before it, you know, whatever. Anyways, what I essentially have learned in this program are that probably what any good therapist could tell you, but also a drunk could also tell you that, um, we have tools. We really honestly don't have to drink over anything. And that sounded like complete hooey when I started. Um, I'm talking more effective when I swear, but okay. But um, that was a pretty good thing to realize, and it doesn't mean I'm not going to have crap days. Man, I have crap days sometimes. So um, what I do know is that I start... I'm going to turn this off so a little bit of time left. I start every day with the daily reflection. I make a list of three gratitudes and three things I should need to pray about, and that's a pretty awesome thing. Um, I continue to work my steps slowly but surely, and uh, I know that I really only have to do one day at a time, like all these other annoyingly effective AA things. Um, 
you know, I, I committed to it and it worked. And the upshot is AA saved my life. I mean, I guess I could have killed somebody that night. I probably wouldn't have, but that's not the kind of life saving I'm talking about. AA allowed me to have a life. And, um, that's just really more than I could ask for. So, um, as my good friend always says, with that, I will take another 24. Hello, everybody. My name is Tanner. I'm an alcoholic. Yes, Hope everyone's having a fabulous holidays. I'm absolutely grateful and blessed to be able to do this and come here and spend my Christmas with you guys and my beautiful partner, Julia. Uh, I've had a great holidays, if you guys were wondering. Uh, so when I was asked to do this at first, uh, I wasn't really sure because of what my holidays were going to look like. And then talked to my partner and it seemed like the great thing to do for Christmas. And uh, I'm extremely grateful. Uh, my sobriety date is 11-27-2014. So I have a little bit over two years. Uh, my home group is Bottom Feeders on Tuesday nights. Uh, it's a little bit north. Uh, if you want the address, let me know. We'd love to have you guys there. Uh, my sponsor is Jordan B. And... Uh, he has like seven years sobriety and I've just started working with him uh, this last couple months after wanting a new experience pretty much. Uh, so I'm going to talk a little bit about alcoholism because I think it's fitting uh, and <laughs> right and we're going to get into well first I want to say that by no means am I perfect right and I don't want to be speaking I'm in front of a podium with a microphone but I'm not coming from a mountaintop uh, I'm very passionate about what I do and the life I live today because I'm absolutely grateful like I said when I started to be living this life and uh, having the experiences I get to have uh, what untreated alcoholism looks like for me is uh, it's very unfortunate and it's it's pretty rough uh at the end there i won't go into detail as to what it was like completely the the whole timeline but mainly there at the end uh it was i was living i was homeless uh derelict uh, lost morality completely broken emotionally i wasn't really uh of use to anybody else selfishness self-centeredness all the defects that you can think of the whole spectrum that's what i suffered from uh by a young age i believed i was suffering from untreated untreated alcoholism from you know the moment i was alive uh, i always felt different it was really hard for me to relate to others uh, i always felt like an outcast and couldn't really uh, attach myself to anyone had a little bit of a tumultuous growing up with like my family and divorce and everything like that but that's not why i i drank like an alcoholic you know that's not why i'm an alcoholic i believe that uh i have the allergy and that uh, the mental obsession takes over as well and so with the three times i had gone to treatment three times from the age of 15 to i think 20 21 years old uh never really was it on my own accord it was from family and friends uh or the court system whatever they, they'd have me go and it never really stuck i never really uh sunk it in i'd go to meetings i, I would do that whole deal but uh surrender wasn't there yet because it wasn't as bad as it could have been i guess uh for me and so Really, when, when it came time for me to go to treatment about two years ago, because that's what it takes for me to be able to get sober, it is a removal from anything and all, like, possibilities of drinking. It's really hard for me to, to stop drinking on my own. Like, like I know a lot of people that can do that. I'm unable. Uh, and so I, I went to Lakeside Milam, and I went in, as I said, uh, homeless, 
Uh, I, I was close to 300 pounds. I, I was really, really unhealthy spiritually, mentally, emotionally, uh, and didn't really have much to show for it. And, and I was broken and I was afraid. And uh, I, I went to my family. I said, I need help. And they said we'd been waiting for that, you know. And I, I went into Lakeside and I believe that the, the surrender came early for me. It, it wasn't a, a huge fight because I had been fighting it for the last seven years. And so when it came time for me to go into treatment, uh, it was, I didn't have any questions. I wasn't on the fence. I was ready, and uh, I was an open book. I, I was a sponge, right? And so when I came in and I started getting direction, and, and they started telling me things like, you know, you need to get a sponsor. And I had known, I had a basic outline of what AA was. I, uh, you know, since I was 15, I'd been coming in and out of the rooms uh, where my ears open, not not really, but I was in the rooms, and so I, I knew the lingo. I knew uh, it was comfortable for me to speak in meetings. It wasn't really a big uh, fear factor for me. I was comfortable, and so and I knew what a sponsor was. I didn't know what it looked like to work, you know, the steps. But uh, so they said, get a sponsor, Tanner. So I, I got up and I got a sponsor, and you're going to see through uh, through what I'm talking about that that was the that's the trend with me is action, right? And in the next indicated right step. And so I got a sponsor. Uh, they said, you need to get into an Oxford house, which is a sober living, right? Which I'm grateful for. It, it really helped me learn how to live again. Uh, and so I interviewed and, and went in there. And so when I got out of treatment, uh, I'm from Tacoma and I moved out to the Kirkland on the inside on the east side so I guess you can call it geographical I needed to get away from there and that's what they thought so I did that uh moved in and they said my sponsor said you need to call me every day and uh I called him every single day I think after like a month or two I, I didn't call him for two days in a row and we were supposed to meet and this is when I believe I really got serious for the program and, and, and really got kind of like startled because he said hey you haven't called me for two days and we were supposed to meet today is that do you really want this you know do you want this do you want to stay sober and uh I guess I hadn't really asked myself that question uh and I sat I think it was in my bathroom and, and I sat for like 15 minutes and I was scared and I was like do I want this oh my goodness and, and I did and so I called him back and I said this is this is absolutely what I want. I want a better life. And so he said, great, you got to call me. And uh, what that looked like is I continued to call him. Every week we met and we, and we got into the book and we talked and I, and I was transparent with him for what I was capable of. I was honest with him. And we went through the work and uh, I learned things about myself. I wrote inventory. Uh, I believe through doing that, the obsession to drink was lifted. And, and with that is freedom that's that's to me what freedom is and that's what the program has given me is freedom and so when when that obsession was removed he said now you need to go and you need to sponsor others and uh I believe that I could have done more work at that time. I was probably three or four months sober. Uh we went through it pretty rapid uh through their lineage. They got it done. And so after that I, I went back through this the work again and that's where I believe I had a better understanding of what it looked like to sponsor. You know, I wanted uh I wanted to help others for you know, like, look how many sponsees I have rather than, like, how many people I can help. You know, it was like an image thing. And so I let go of that and got into the work. And sponsorship uh, is really key for me and it's vital uh, because some, I've learned more about myself and what it's like to be selfless and to show up for others uh, through anything else than just, just sponsorship. That's been absolutely pivotal in my recovery as long with, uh, along with, like, honesty and, and fear, like, like walking through fear and, and really just doing the work and, like I said, action. And so uh, I've, been, I've been sponsored this whole time over two years plus. I've gone through ups and downs in sobriety uh, at 
a little over a year clean or sober, I, uh, a sponsee took his life. He, he, uh, he was the first person I took through the steps and he, and he, he killed himself. Right. And, uh, this is where I found my faith and what it looked like my higher power, really what it really meant to actually seek a higher power and to, uh, have faith and, and go to something that isn't of human, like just isn't of this earth, I guess, like human. Uh, I had to go to something more than that. And I, and I learned what that relationship looked like through that experience. And it was really hard. And, uh, along with that, as I said earlier, I'm not perfect. So on a day-to-day basis, I struggle with insecurity. I struggle with fear, dishonesty, uh, self-worth, right? I struggle with so much, but, uh, today I have tools and I mean, that's really like, it's really vague and kind of general ways like, oh, I have tools. Well, how does that look? Is it like I actively, as I said, I actively talk to my sponsor. I actively seek help when it comes to like my higher power and strength, right? I walk through these things instead of running away because that's what I was really good at was running away and uh, for a really long time. And I didn't know what truth was. I didn't know what it meant to be transparent with others in my family. And uh, it's given me a life back that I never thought I could ever have. A lot of the times, very few times in my life have I felt like I've ever gotten gotten something that I needed and wanted and that's what the program gave me and I I haven't experienced that very much I don't think we get to often it's either what we need or what we want and I've gotten both and uh, that's what keeps me coming back that's what keeps me coming to do this you know I mean it's intimidating to be up here right now but this is how I stay sober right is that I accept it when when he asked me I said I'd love to I'd be absolutely honored because I get to come and I get to speak what has been freely given to me I get to come to you guys you know and so uh it's it's an absolute blessing so just to kind of kind of wrap it up i have about i have a little bit left but i'm going to read something that i believe uh, this is the first spiritual experience in the book to me i believe and that it jumped out at me when i was uh reading it through another person because when i when i'm read the book i I don't hear as much but when i read the book to others uh, i i see things i never even like would have read and so uh it's doctor's opinion page xxi uh, and it's where Dr. Jung, I think, uh, is talking about a patient he had seen and a completely hopeless state like I was. And I think this is why I relate to it very much. Uh, he said he had lost everything worthwhile in life and was only living, one might say, to drink. He frankly admitted he believed that for him there was no hope. Following the elimination of alcohol, there was found to be no permanent brain injury. He accepted the plan outlined in this book. One year later, he called to see me, and I experienced a very strange sensation. I knew the man by name and partly recognized his features, but they're all resembling ended from a trembling despairing nervous wreck had emerged a man brimming over with self-reliance and contentment i talked to him for some time but was not able to bring myself to feel that i had known him before to me he was a stranger and so he left me a long time passed with no return to alcohol and why i believe that's so absolutely profound is because that's been my experience is that uh i've had family members you know they, they say that those closest to you notice your change before you know you know it yourself and uh i had family members who would it's like a wake-up call you know they sit me down they say i can't even believe the person that's sitting in front of me today and me i'm thinking i'm still same old tanner i'm not that young kid running around just completely lost scared you know don't even know what's going on and i sit down and they say we're grateful to have you in our lives it's not like oh tanner's coming around goodness gracious you know hide the booze and like lock the doors you know it's that's not it anymore i'm actually wanted right uh there was a time where i was told that i was never going to be able to see my nieces and nephews which are which is 
really important to me, even when I was uh, drinking, uh, that I'd never see him again until I was able to get sober. And today I ha- I'm best friends with my niece, right? And now I have more nephews that I get to have in their lives and they want me there, right? I have another nephew who... I hadn't met because I was uh, drinking, right? And I was out, and uh, I missed his birthday. I missed my brother's wedding. But now I get to actually mend those that missed time and make up for it with even better times because I'm present. And I'm, you know, able to be honest and loving to these people. And that's an absolute blessing. Uh, The program has given me a life. And like I said, I always needed and always wanted. I didn't know this is what I wanted, and, and this has exceeded any possible expectation I could have ever had because I didn't come in with any expectations. I just wanted to be happy, right? And I wanted to love myself, and it's taken time, and not always am I able to live in that moment where I'm okay with who I am, even with it, if it's financially, if it's physically, if it's where I'm at in life, like status-wise. But like today, I'm able to show up, and I'm able to do these types of things and, and help others, which is so key for me. I'm able to I remain to pray and I remain remain to seek what that may look like and seek honesty and uh you know right my wrongs like it's not a just a it's not there's no end goal for me in 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 AA I'll be honest I'm not looking to hit a point where I'm five years sober I can go to my meeting a week which is my home group and have two sponsees have them check in with me and we're golden right there's no end goal I'm not trying to get to that point where I can coast right because there's always more and, and we live in a very vast vast world where there's always room for change and I'm not looking for contentment I'm looking for freedom not just freedom from you know alcoholism but I want freedom from insecurity I want to be able to be content with who I am right I want to show up for my partner and my loved ones I want to be a better man I want to be a man because at times I struggle with that you know ask people close to me that's a big deal to me is being a man you know and I believe the program's given me the opportunity to be a man and to learn what that may look like you know and and always get better and always strive and and I just want to say that I'm absolutely blessed to be here I hope everyone has a safe and, and wonderful just joyous filled you know uh, holidays and if you have any questions about you know how you can get help for your alcoholism or if you just have any questions about anything i'm an open door come talk to me Uh, if you want to come to our home group bottom feeders we'd love to have you and uh just just thank you so much for allowing me to speak thank you hi i'm kim alcoholic thanks for having me speak tonight um So my sobriety date is May 23rd, 2014, and my home group is Empire Way. Um, My drinking career, um, really towards the end of my drinking, I drank one to two bottles of wine every night, every every day, 365 days a year for about 10 years. Um, And of course, you know, throwing some good weekends and some vacation. And let's just say I've heard that I've broken records at restaurants um, for drinking, especially in foreign countries. So I, uh, I, I had a pretty solid wine problem. Um, But what's interesting is that I never drank in high school and I didn't drink a lot in my early 20s, it was this constant, slow progression that just kept layering and layering and layering itself. Um, And really, the last few years of my drinking was just exhausting. Um, But what's interesting to me is that nobody ever confronted me about my drinking problem. 
My husband didn't really think it was a, an issue because I opened the second bottle by the time he went to bed. So he didn't really notice um, that I was, you know, going into bottle number two at 10 o'clock at night. Um, and I didn't hide bottles because every day I would just stop by the liquor store on the way home and pick up a couple bottles of wine. And that seems pretty normal, right? Um, I had a job. Nobody confronted me at that. Um, and my job also required lots of happy hour and travel and that sort of thing. So everybody drank. And I also lived in Manhattan, so I didn't have to drive. I lived there for about seven years. Um, so I didn't have a DUI. So all these things compounded like, well, I don't really have a, I'm not an alcoholic. I just drink a lot. Um, and so I never truly confronted the problem because nobody ever came to me and really identified that I had a problem. Um, some moments that started to stand out to me is that my very close friend who we travel with all the time, another couple, nicknamed me PB, and that's personal bottle. So anytime we went to restaurants when we traveled, everybody would order their cocktail, but I would order my own bottle of wine. And this often threw the servers at the restaurants. They could not understand, like, well, do I bring more glasses? I'm like, no, 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 I, j I just want the bottle of wine. And it constantly dumbfounded them. And then that was becoming my nickname. I mean, who wants a nickname called Personal Bottle when you travel? <laughs> it's not really ideal. Um, you know, some other things, too, is I thought, hey, you know, I just need to get healthier. So I started to join a triathlon club in New York City. Um, but one of the moments that I knew that I was struggling is that we would often have early morning workouts. And on one of the runs, it was like three miles or something to that effect, I broke down crying because I was so hungover, I could not keep up with the group. I was just miserable. I was deeply hungover and sick. And this woman I was running with, she was like, it's not a big deal. It's only three miles. I'll get you through it. It's fine. I'm like, you don't understand. I, I can't physically do this anymore. I literally stopped this five-month training program that I had to raise thousands of dollars for charity, and I had to drop out because I had a drinking problem, and I had to admit it to her that I, I, I can't do this because I can't drink until 2 o'clock in the morning and get up with a bunch of healthy people and try, to, and try to do this. I had this weird dichotomy. I wanted this life that was fresh and sparkly and healthy and positive and, you know, high-achieving, but I would also have these dark moments every night of just losing myself and numbing out and drinking at night. Um, another time that was kind of a, a real low point for me is that I went moved back to Seattle and then I had a business trip to New York City and I stayed at this really cool hotel called the Ace Hotel in New York. You know, there's one in Seattle. It has this fabulous bar. Um, and I went to dinner. Of course, I had some drinks in my room, then went out to dinner with some colleagues, went back to, to the bar by myself at like 11 o'clock at night, stayed in the bar until about 2.30 in the morning, kept drinking. I don't even know how many drinks I'm probably in, maybe seven, eight at this point. 2.30 rolls around. I go back to my hotel room. I continue to drink. And I was up until about 4 o'clock in the morning just still drinking wine, having my own little private party in my room, playing music, having a blast in my own head. Um, 
But I had a 9 a.m. meeting the next day that I was presenting to 10 people who I'd never met before. Um, and it was an agency that we hired, and I had to lead the meeting. And, I mean, I can whip it together, and I can get as polished as possible. But it was rough. I mean, I, I couldn't hold a coffee cup. I mean, I'm sure everybody's felt this way, but I couldn't hold a coffee cup. I could barely get through my conversation. I was stuttering the whole time. And I was mortified. I just, I wanted to get through the meeting so I can get the hell out of there. It was one of the most humiliating experiences just because I could barely function through the meeting, but I was gritting my teeth doing everything I can to just get through this. Um, I could only survive on Gatorade for about 24 hours because I was so sick. Um, and the next day I met friends for drinks and felt great again and went back to my life, you know. It was, it was like nothing had happened. I knew it was bad, but it's like, you know what, just have another drink. What am I saying the next day? I went out that night. What am I saying? So I went out that night and had drinks. And, you know, it was like life just got right back to normal. But I knew that the wheels were about to come off the bus. And somebody once said in a meeting that you really don't want to try to find your rock bottom. Again, I never had, I never had the, the DUI and the falling downstairs and the broken arms and that sort of thing. But I had a heaviness over me that was almost debilitating. I, I would wake up in the morning just losing my grip and having anxiety that I almost couldn't take anymore. My self-loathing was just taking over me. Um, so I did what anybody would do. I went to yoga. And I, again, joined a gym. And I bought as many self-help books as I could possibly find. I went to a therapist. And it's like, I just have all these stresses in life. I just have a lot of stress in my life. And I just need some help, right? I just need some help. Um, and, you know, I'm not an alcoholic. I don't have alcohols in my family, which is funny because when you really start looking around, uh, I actually have found a lot more family members that are alcoholic, which surprised me. Um, but, you know, so I went to therapy. I went to a couple of different therapists, and it's shocking how it was great. After a while, my, my therapist said, you have a, you're an alcoholic. You need to go to AA. This is, you're wasting our, my time. You're wasting your time. You have to go to AA. And I was like, oh, my God, that's the last thing. Like, I can't. I can't do this. I can't be in church basements. I can't go. Um, I just, I didn't want that label. I didn't want to be known as an alcoholic. Because um, I didn't have any friends. I didn't know anybody. I, didn't, I, I had no connection to AA whatsoever. Um, so I went to my first meeting in New York City. It was like this circle of maybe 12 people. I walked in, and it was something out of like a Woody Allen movie. Like everybody was like super buddy buddy and kind of like little rough and tumbled around the edges. I lived on the Upper West Side. It's just, it was an interesting meeting, and I sat right next to um, the leader, the moderator. And everybody went around and said, I'm an alcoholic, and I said, I'm an alcoholic, and I couldn't stop crying. Um, 
And I tried to go back to that meeting a few times, but it just, it was not the right fit for me. And I, I didn't know, I didn't know you could find different, I thought that was how all meetings were. I didn't know. So I went to one or two other meetings, um, but it, it didn't feel good to me. I didn't find relief. I didn't find people I could identify with. So for the next four years, I just kind of drifted in and out. I went sober six months. I was white knuckling it. I was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to stay sober. And then I'd relapse again. And I did that for about four years. And let me tell you, it's a purgatory is how I felt. It was a colossal, I just feel like I wasted so much time. Um, so then I had, I came back to Seattle and I started to get more serious about this. I knew that I needed to address this and I started to go to meetings. Um, I found a sponsor. I, I knew I needed to take this seriously. I was becoming willing. I hadn't surrendered, but I became willing. And so I found a sponsor and it, it didn't, it was not the right fit. She was super tough. Um, she was, you know, the 90 and 90 and, um, you know, call me every day and do all this homework and that kind of thing. And I was just barely like doe-eyed, like, I don't know if I can do this. And she was like, this isn't going to work out. I'm sorry. You're not, you're not turning everything over to this. And so it's not going to work out for, for her and for me. So I was like, fine, I'll just kind of drift in and out of the rooms. Um, I'll just try this thing on my own. I'll just go to, you know, one meeting here and there and just see how it goes. And I went 11 months sober and I had a big trip to New Zealand planned with our friends again, same friends that we travel a lot with. Um, and I actually, we, I picked New Zealand because I thought, hey, it's going to be the outdoors. It's going to be hiking. We planned a hiking trip. It's like, you can't drink hiking. It'll be great. I mean, I, I thought, hey, I could get sober camping. I mean, that's ridiculous, right? Um, I really thought that. I was like, if I go camping, I can get three days sober. Um, went the month before New Zealand, I literally was like, I, I can't go on a vacation without drinking. I can't do this. And I, I relapsed um, because I didn't have a sponsor. I didn't go to meetings, and I relapsed. I said, there's no way I'm going on an international vacation and not drink. Um, and, again, I picked up right back where I started again. Um, and let me tell you, by the way, I have been in countries, the most remote places in the world. Truly, I've been in the Sahara Desert. There is alcohol. You can find alcohol on a mountaintop. I went hiking on a mountain that they brought in supplies by helicopter because it was so remote, no roads. There's a full bar. So <laughs> I thought that, you know what, if you go somewhere remote or if I could just will myself into, you know, go places that doesn't have alcohol, you can find alcohol anywhere. I mean, we, we all know that. Um, and so... I came back and I knew again, it's like, I can't do this anymore. I was exhausted. I was sick and tired of counting glasses of wine at the dinner table and where's the waiter and where's my wine and what time does the store close and how do I, I couldn't do it anymore. So I surrendered. And again, that word sounds kind of corny and I know we talk about it, but I really had to surrender and I found a sponsor. I found a group of women that I felt got me. Um, again, I cried for the first six months and I went through the steps. I met with my sponsor once a week. I still talked to her almost every day. I go to two to three meetings a week. I now sponsor, have a sponsee who's in her first 45 days. And 
after truly just going through the steps, following direction, and nothing that's unreasonable. I found a sponsor who, she got me, I get her, I know how she works. It's a, she's not, she's a friend, but she's also a mentor of the program. And I finally found that relief and that peace that I had been looking for for years, many, 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 many years. And, you know, it's still tough. You know, you hear the saying, life on life's terms, and that's absolutely true. There are many moments that I'd love to, you know, crack open and celebrate a glass of champagne at somebody's wedding. But, you know what, I, I know that I'm not going to act like an idiot at that wedding. I'm going to feel great the next day. I'm going to be a person that that bride is proud to be next to. Whereas if I was drinking, who knows what would happen and where that night would take me. So what I found is that, you know, this program works if you just follow the simple steps. And I, I didn't necessarily have the big pink cloud aha moment of finding the God of my, my choice. But it slowly has come to me, and I mean slowly. But I just literally, when somebody asks for help, I say yes. When somebody says come to meetings, I go. When my sponsor says call me, I do. I just follow those very basic principles, and I don't have to drink today. And it's a hell of a lot easier to do this than it is to white-knuckle it, to hope for this to go away. Um, so, yeah. Thank you. Hi, my name's Tucker. I'm an alcoholic. Let's see. My sobriety date is... Yeah, press start. Don't let me go over. My sobriety date is May 13th of 2015. That's last year. And um, I do have a sponsor. His name is Mark, and I have a home group, which is the Joe and Charlie Big Book Study at Cherry Fellowship. We meet every Saturday morning at 9 o'clock, and if you haven't heard of Joe and Charlie, I highly suggest you come and check it out. It's pretty cool. So uh, I, when I was asked to speak tonight, of course, I immediately start going into, like, alcoholic mode and just like, oh my gosh, like, I need to prepare something because I need to sound wise and impart all my wisdom upon you, and... Um, <laughs> I don't have any wisdom. Um, I purposefully did not prepare tonight. So if it seems like I'm all over the place, that's the reason. Um, the reason I purposefully did not prepare for tonight was because I find that when I start preparing, um, I start finding myself just being full of... They told me I'm not allowed to cuss at this meeting, so it might be a pretty small or pretty short speech. Um, I, I'm full of it, right? Like, I'll be sitting in a meeting, and I'll be, as instead of listening to what people are talking about, I'm thinking about what I'm going to say, how wise I'm going to be, and that's when I know I need to not raise my hand at a meeting. Anyway, so I'm going to stick to uh, what it was like, what happened, what, it, what it's like today. Um, what it was like is I drank. I, I, I am a real alcoholic. Alcoholic. I um I didn't get into much of that other stuff out there um, that many of us did. I, I experimented with other drugs a few times. I pretty much stuck to alcohol though. That allowed me to kind of maintain this air of superiority that I wasn't I wasn't like those those dirty drug addicts. Um, drinking is legal. Everybody does it. You know, country musicians sing about it. It's on the TV. 
Um, it's just part of American life. Um, and I didn't know, I didn't know that the way that I drink was different, right? I didn't know that I'm abnormal because I'm my only point of reference, right? Like I didn't start drinking till I was 18, 19. I'm a late bloomer. Um, but I made up for lost time and the way I drank, I thought everybody drank like that. I thought everybody had that feeling that once, once I put a drink in my body, I immediately crave a second and a third and a fourth. I thought everybody drank to get drunk. Like still to this day, it baffles me. There's people out there that don't try to get drunk when they drink. They just drink. Because maybe they like the taste of it. Maybe, I don't know, like it looks fancy with the cocktail in their hands. I don't know why they drink if they're not going to get drunk. It baffles me. So I drank to get drunk, and I had I had some fun. Um, back in um, my, my early days, I surrounded myself with other people who like to drink and have fun like I did. And um, that was kind of normal. If you didn't drink like I did, then I probably wasn't friends with you because that's what I wanted to do. And if you weren't drinking, I probably wasn't hanging out with you. As I went on, though, the problems started coming up. I um, Drinking started to affect my life. I started to, it was preventing me from be the per, being the person that I thought I was, right? I thought I was a pretty good guy. Uh, drinking was getting in the way of that. It was preventing me from um, being honest. It was preventing me from showing up on time. It was preventing me from paying my bills. Um, and it slowly progressed to the point where I was drinking. I would drink every weekend. And then I'd drink every Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then I'd drink all Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then I'd drink every night. And then I'd drink every day. And then I'd drink all day, every day. And that's that's the kind of drunk that I am. Like when I'm drinking, I I'm drinking, right? Like when people ask, um, <laughs> usually non-alcoholics, you know, when they find out that I my drinking career, they say, "Well, but you didn't drink and drive, did you?" <laughs> I say, "Well, I was always drunk and I had to get places, so <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I drank." I, I drove while intoxicated. Um, I was the designated drunk driver with all my friends because I was really good at it. And that makes people cringe. It makes me cringe that I say that I'm good at drunk driving. Um, but trust me, in the height of my alcoholism, you don't want me driving unless I have a few drinks in me because I am shaking like a leaf. I'm having physical um, withdrawal symptoms. So that, I mean, that's what it's like. Um, I drank, I fell over, I threw up, um, I drank some more and things came crashing down around me. I was able to, uh, kind of get to the point of desperation, not kind of, I got to that point of desperation, a series of events, um, you know, jobs, money and relationships all going away. And when I was 21 years old, I believe, 20 or 20 or 21, almost 21 years old, I had a fake ID. Um, I had it, and I did what any self-respecting alcoholic 20-year-old did. I called mommy and daddy, and next thing I knew, they were coming to pick me up, took me off to a little 28-day vacation. And in my first inpatient, that's where I was introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous, um, 
that was about 12 years ago, and I have a little over a year sobriety today. So I obviously have not been able to maintain sobriety that whole time, but I have had quality sobriety during that time. I've had much more clean time than um, than dirty time, than um, drinking time in those last 12 years. Because the way I drink, the whole thing about, you know, it's still progressing even though I'm not drinking. That's all true. I'm not going to repeat it. You've all heard it. Um, but when I'd start to drink, I'd, I'd pick up worse than where I left off. So I had about five or six years in the program, um, and my, my relapses have been very short, um, mainly because... I, I'm not a very tough guy. Like I have a very low threshold for pain and I get back here pretty quickly. Um, each time that I've come back though, it's, it's gotten a lot harder to get back. But so that's kind of what I want to talk about as far as like what happened, right? With AA is my experience coming into AA the first time versus my experience coming in second, third time. Right. And um, the first time I had never heard of AA and it was like all the cheesy metaphors in the book. Um, I grabbed onto the life preserver. I was like, yes, teach me sensei. I will do this. I don't care what they say. I need to find a God. I'm like, fine. I don't know where God is, but there's a church down the street. I'll go to church. And I just jumped headfirst into this and I did everything and I was on fire for AA and that that served me well for a long time. I was like Mr. Um, Mr. On Fire for AA, you know, sponsor, sponsees, home groups, general service, all that stuff. Um, now, what happened then has kind of been a theme in my, um, when I've chosen to go back out and drink, is my life changed, right? And historically, I have not been good about dealing with change in AA. So I ended up moving up here to Washington State from California. <laughs> moved to Spokane over in eastern Washington. And I did, long story short, I didn't go to meetings. I went to a couple meetings. They did them differently than we did them in California. All my friends weren't there. Um, I said, screw this. I'm going to keep going to church. Um, kept going to church, got really involved with church, and I was kind of using that as my meetings. Uh, long story short, uh, the church did not keep me sober, nor could it get me sober when I hit that point of desperation again. Um, and I tried. You know, I, I you know, they, they prayed over me. I got oil and all, all that stuff, speaking in tongues. It didn't work. Um, and unfortunately, my church was such that they actively discouraged me from going back to AA. Um, yeah, those churches do exist. Um, so I've done some fourth step work around that, but I was actually, actually discouraged from going back to AA. I was told it was a cult. I was told I didn't need it. Um, sooner or later though, I realized that church was a cult, went back to AA. <laughs> it was, it was, it, um, yeah. <laughs> they don't let me back there. Um, Anyways, um, I digress. Uh, moved over here to Seattle. Got sober. Great sober. Playing in a sober band. Uh, part of a sober motorcycle club. All my friends are sober. It's great. Just living, breathing, eating, sleeping, sobriety. Um, and I was happy. I was really happy. Um, and I was working. I was doing the steps. I had a sponsor. I had the sponsees. It was great. Um, life changed. 
I moved here to Seattle, changed relationships, changed jobs. And as is my history, I've always tried to make the program that worked for me last year work for me now, right? And that's what I tried to do over here. Um, until eventually I just gave up, stopped going to meetings. Sponsor came, came over and visited me because, of course, I still had my old sponsor. Um, I didn't get a new one. And he said, well, why aren't you going to meetings? And I, I was like, okay, fine. So I did 90-90 here. got very plugged in, um, got involved, had some friends in sobriety that I really relied upon. Life changed again. Friends pass away. Friends move away. Um, I ended up getting drunk again. I don't want to keep focusing. Everyone in here in this room knows how to get drunk, right? So I don't want to focus on that. I want to focus now on um, what it's like today, right? What do I do today to get sober? Um, I was going to meetings. I was terrified about a year and a half ago because I was drinking and I was going to meetings and I was I was trying so hard to get sober. I, I needed to get sober. I wanted to get sober. I was going to meetings. I had the sponsor. And the only thing in the world that had ever helped me get sober, the only thing in the world, Alcoholics Anonymous, wasn't working for me. And I was terrified because I was like, oh, shit. You know, they call this the last house. Oh, sorry. They call this the, the last house on the block. And I was like, man, even the last house on the block isn't working for me anymore. Um... And I was terrified to go back to inpatient because, you know, I was very important, had important things to do, you know, had a, had a wife, had a pregnant wife to take care of, and I had a very important job to take care of. Well, the wife was about ready to kick me out. The job was about ready to fire me. Um, wife and job helped encourage me. I like to think that I checked myself into rehab. Everyone thinks they check themselves into rehab. No one checks themselves into rehab. No one checks themselves. No. So, um, I checked. The only reason I can say I checked myself into rehab is because I took a taxi there because my wife was done. She was so done. She didn't even want to drive me to rehab. So I checked myself in 28 days. Um, I did what I did the first time I read the book. I did what they suggested me to do. Um, when I got out, I had a sponsor. Um, I'm working with that sponsor today. Um, gone through the steps. Um, still reading the big book on a regular basis with him. I'm working with sponsees. I'm in the market for sponsees right now um, because what I find today is helping other people is the joy of this program. Um, I mean, let's face it. We're, it's the middle of August. We're in a church basement and coffee. I don't know. Coffee probably sucks. It doesn't most meetings. Like that's not why I'm here tonight, right? That's not why I go to this program. I go to this program because I need to stay sober first and foremost, but how I do that is helping other people and not because I'm a spiritual guru, but because that's just what I have to do. Like, that's what I've realized. Um, and I hate talking about helping other people because it makes me seem like, oh, well, I'm, I'm such a great person. No, it's not. It's just because I need to save my ass. I'm very matter of fact about it. I'm like, well, shit. My sponsor had, sorry. <laughs> my, my, my sponsor hasn't called me for two weeks. God darn it. Now I need to go find someone else. Right? I'm like, oh, that sponsor was convenient. He lived right around the corner from me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> And you see how selfish that is. It's like, yeah, 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 he's drinking. He's, you know, he's drinking himself to death. He's probably locked up. Yeah, but me, me, I need to help somebody, right? 
So, you know, I'm not under any delusion that I'm, like, changing the world tonight or helping someone tonight. Um, but someone asked me to be here, and I'm lazy. I don't like going out and searching for sponsors or searching for opportunities to be of service. So when someone comes to me and says, here, take this, I'm like, oh, yes, please, freebie. So this is my freebie for tonight. So thank you guys so much for um, listening to me. Sorry, we can bleep that out on the recording if someone's recording that. And um, I hope the next speaker has something more inspiring than what I had to say. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.